Good morning. Um, this last year at RUF at Western, uh, we started uh, large group worship for the first time. We're Presbyterians, so we have very practical names for things. When we get together with a small group of people, we call that a small group. And when everyone gets together in a large group, we call that large group. <clears throat> One of the other campus ministers at Western joked that it must have been Presbyterians that named kitchen appliances. What should we call it? Well, it makes toast. Let's call it a toaster. <laughs> anyway, point being, uh, we started large group worship in January uh, with student-led singing and uh, preaching. And so for our first uh, sermon series at RUF, I decided to do a five-sermon set on the life of Paul. Um, you know, so many people have read through Acts and know about the story of the early church, but what specifically was God doing in Paul's life? And uh, so we did a sermon on Paul before his conversion, and we did a sermon on Paul's conversion. And, uh, and then many people know about the missionary journeys, but did you know that there's a 14, 15-year chunk between his conversion and his missionary journeys? And uh, so for that reason, we have a rather complicated uh, passage this morning from uh, a number of different parts of the Bible. I've combed together everything we know in the Bible about those 15 years. And so if you would stand together as I read us God's Word, uh, we can hear it and, uh, and sing and consider it together. This is the Word of the Lord. First of all, from Acts 26, Paul describing the moment of his conversion. Paul says, And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And then from Acts 9, Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And then Paul writes in Galatians 1, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. And then in Acts 9, it says, When many days had passed in Damascus, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And then in Galatians 1, Paul says, After three years in Damascus, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none, other than the, uh, none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Then in Acts 22, Paul says, When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to him, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Then in Acts 9, 
So he went in and out among them in Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. And then again in Galatians 1, Paul says, Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. And then in Acts 11 we hear, So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Then in Acts 13 we hear, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And then finally from Galatians 2, Paul says, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us briefly. We can consider this passage together. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are alive and at work among us, um, that you call people like Saul, even like us. Uh, Pray that you would give us insight uh, into his life and really into your life, into yourself, uh, and give us courage and hope to cling to you and give us eyes to see the way that you are at work among us today uh, through these words in your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, This year, just a month ago, um, we had some of our first graduates uh, graduate from RUF at Western. One of them, Abby, uh, was with us from the beginning. And uh, Abby uh, is one of these people that just was born with a love for other cultures. Um, before I met her, she, had, she was just coming back from a summer that she spent in Myanmar, living with some missionaries there, and loved it, and could not stop talking about it, and spent um, three years with us at Western. A year ago, over the summer, uh, she had decided that in addition to her degree, she was going to pick up a TESOL certificate, teach English as a second language. And so the Western was sending her down for the month of August to a, a small town about an hour south of Mexico City where she could practice uh, teaching English in a Spanish-speaking country. Uh, and so I said to her, knowing that she loves to connect with people in other cultures, I said, did you know there's an RUF in Mexico City? 
And she was like, no, that would be amazing. And so uh, the next I heard about this, she had decided, she contacted them and then flew down to Mexico City three weeks early and uh, surfed couches, uh, mostly the couch of the minister there, and worked with them and helped put on programs and then did her TESOL program and then came back at the end of last summer. And she said, Nathaniel, I have to do the RUF internship. I have to go back to Mexico City. And so uh, she applied and was accepted to do the RUF internship. So RUF has an internship program for college graduates to spend two or more years working with the campus ministry. And, uh, and we do, in fact, have RUFs in other countries. Here's the thing. We've never sent an intern to another country before. And so uh, everything about her internship program has been complicated. Uh, I was chatting with Abby this last week. She's already down in Mexico. Uh, but she's still raising support, but they wanted her to go down to do a little enculturation work, and then in their schedule, they do a big student retreat in mid-June, and so they wanted her there for that. And so Abby's down in Mexico City right now, and uh, she's not sure where she's going to live this fall. Uh, Right now, she's sleeping on a mattress in the floor of the living room of the female staff at the RUF there. Uh, She has some of her support raised, but not all of it, and she doesn't know where the rest is going to come from. Uh, She was telling me, I'm so excited to be here, but I actually have no idea what my job is, and I don't know what it's going to look like. And uh, by the way, she doesn't even know how much money she has to raise because RUF hasn't been able to give her her budget yet because we've never done an international internship before, and so they're still trying to figure out uh, very Presbyterian things like health insurance and how do you translate money into pesos and all this sorts of stuff. And so she's excited and yet living in a world of uncertainty. Uh, she sent me this quote this week from a book she's been reading. So this is the quote from the, from the book. This is not Abby. This is the book. It says, I came home praying all the way and striving to commit myself entirely to him in whose school I sit as learner. Oh, that I were a better scholar, but I do not half my lessons as well as I should. I am heedless and inattentive, and I forget what is taught. Perhaps this is the reason that weighty truths float before my mind's eye at times, but do not fix themselves there. And so she's so wanting to do a good job and exciting, and yet just sort of in this world of spinning chaos. Where is God in seasons like that? Um, When we're on a path that it seems like he sent us, and yet we have no idea where it's headed, or how we're going to be provided for, or what's going on, and even in ourselves, we feel this, uh, this inability to, to learn and do well, and who knows even what is happening. Where is God during those times? Uh, as I said in large group last year, we did this uh, sermon on the life of Paul, and uh, many of us know about Paul's dramatic conversion where lights shone from heaven, and Jesus spoke, and Paul was blinded, literally knocked off his horse, Uh, And Paul ultimately writes, most of the New Testament goes on uh, four missionary journeys, travels all over the world, and yet in between his conversion and his missionary journeys, there's uh, at least 14, perhaps 20 years of his life. And what was the Lord doing in those years? Well, first of all, uh, let's just walk through this collection of passages. Um, what is the story? What is happening in Paul's life in these years? Well, we start off with the moment of, of Paul's conversion, and in that very moment, a Jesus, in his own audible words, calls him 
uh, to be an apostle to the Gentiles, uh, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan. And then Acts 9, we hear that Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And so uh, Jesus tells him that he's going to go to Damascus, and there's going to be a man who's going to meet with him and tell him what he must do. And uh, simultaneously, Jesus works in the life of this Christian who's living in Damascus named Ananias and tells him to go find Paul in the house on Straight Street, and Ananias finds him there. And uh, Paul receives the truth about Jesus and is baptized and becomes a Christian. Uh, And then we hear this in Galatians 1. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Uh, So we're not sure how long he went into Arabia, um, but it wasn't a weekend or a week. It was uh, some matter of months or years. Uh, That as far as we can tell, basically, Paul, having literally just been knocked off his horse his entire life, has been blown up, his life aim, his, his goal, his motivating impulse, he's just found out actually was evil. And, uh, and so he goes away to pray, uh, which is a common thing that happens in the Bible. Um, Jesus himself oftentimes went away to find times to pray and be with his father. Jesus had a period of 40 days in the wilderness before he began his own ministry. Uh, there are many examples in early church history of men going into the desert to pray. Uh, And so Paul goes into Arabia. Uh, Probably um, what is spoken of here is the area of western Iraq or Jordan. It's a a desert region with not a lot there. And so Paul goes away, spends time in prayer, and eventually returns back to Damascus, uh, where he was first converted and met Ananias. Um, And then he spends some time learning and then begins teaching there. Um, He returned again to Damascus, and then we hear this in Acts 9. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. That's the Jews in Damascus. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And then uh, Paul says in Galatians 1, After three years I went up to Jerusalem. So here's what happened. Paul's uh, learning and doing a little bit of teaching in Damascus, and then they're going to kill him, and so the disciples lower him through the wall, and then he decides to go to Jerusalem, and now we find out he's been in Damascus for three years. So three years has gone by already. Where were you three years ago? I don't know about you, but that that's a significant (laughs) period of my life. Three years ago, RUF at Western hadn't started yet. Um, So that's how much time has passed already in Paul's life. He has to uh, escape Damascus to save his life under cover of darkness. He visits Jerusalem. He says this, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Uh, After three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's Peter, and remained with him for 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And in Galatians, he doesn't say why it's only 15 days, but then we find this in Acts 22. Uh, I went up in and among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord, 
and he spoke and disputed with the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So he's in Jerusalem for two weeks, and then, because uh, he just left Damascus because he was about to get killed, and so he goes to Jerusalem, and he's, he makes it there 15 days before he's going to get killed. While he's there, we learn this, Acts 22, when I returned to Jerusalem, I was praying in the temple and fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. But apparently he still doesn't go because the brothers make him go. They take him down to a seaport and they send him off to Tarsus. Um, And Tarsus is Paul's hometown. So the next thing Paul says about himself in Galatians 1, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. That's where Tarsus is. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. Um, So Paul goes back to his hometown, and uh, that's all that we know about this period. Um, And we're not quite sure how long it lasted, but it was a minimum of five years, more likely ten years. So Paul goes away to pray, spends some years in Damascus, is in Jerusalem for two weeks, and then goes running home, and he's back in his home area, probably making tents. Uh, And it literally says uh, he's still unknown. Uh, they heard that someone was persecuting, but um, is now believing, but no one knows who this guy is. Uh, years later, Barnabas is the pastor of the church at Antioch, and he hears about this guy named Saul, Paul, and so he decides to go get him. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So Barnabas, senior pastor of the church at Antioch, hears about Saul, goes and gets him and brings him back. And so now Saul, for the first time, has a ministry gig. He's what you might call an assistant pastor. He works uh, with Barnabas. He's assisting him in the teaching in the church in Antioch. Uh, and there's a prophecy that there's going to be a famine, and so they order, organize a relief effort, uh, very similar to what you have just done uh, for the saints who are in the Yakima Indian Reservation. And so they, they have this offering together, and they're like, well, what should we do? Well, let's send it down to Jerusalem. Let's send it down uh, with Barnabas and Saul. And so they send their senior and their assistant pastor on a trip down to Jerusalem. And so um, Paul drops off the offering, returns to Antioch, Uh, And then at some point later, uh, they're worshiping and fasting, and the Holy Spirit says, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And so that is the the beginning of the first missionary journey. And so the church in Antioch sends off its senior and its assistant pastor to hit the missions field. They do a trip of what's now called Turkey. And then the last thing we hear about these years is this, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me, one of their converts. And I went up because of a revelation set before them, uh, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. And so finally he returns to Jerusalem uh, as a pastor um, and shares his teaching and news of the missionary journey uh, with 
the saints there. Altogether, at least 14 years. When Paul says after 14 years, we're not quite sure what he's referring to. It may be his conversion. It may be from the time that he left Jerusalem. Uh, Either way, we've got 14 to 20 years in here. Uh, So how do we make sense out of this story? What is God doing in these 14 to 20 years? Uh, Well, basically, I want to notice two things. And the first one is this, that God is at work. God was working this whole time. At the moment of Paul's conversion, Paul didn't get converted, by the way, because he wanted to be. Jesus chased him down. And in the moment of Paul's conversion, he shares with us that in that very moment, Jesus gave him his calling, commissioning him to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Um, Jesus repeats the commission again when Paul goes down to Jerusalem and he's praying in the temple. Jesus repeats the whole thing over again. At this point, it's probably been three to five years. And Jesus says, remember again, I'm calling you to be an apostle to the Gentiles. They're not going to receive your testimony. I'm calling you anyway. And so Jesus uh, repeatedly speaks into his life. Um, Jesus speaks through Ananias into his life in Damascus. Um, The Holy Spirit communicates his desire for Paul and Barnabas specifically to go on the first missionary journey uh, through a prophet. So Paul, the Holy Spirit calls Paul by name um, to send him on the first missionary journey. Uh, Jesus is at work through Barnabas because Paul was at his hometown, a forgotten soul, and um, Barnabas goes and looks for him. And then Paul receives some sort of revelation that sends him back to Jerusalem after his first missionary journey. And so um, it probably didn't feel like this to Paul because this is a chunk of 14 to 20 years, but um, what we have here is the distilled form of all the communications that Paul has been receiving from Jesus through the Holy Spirit all these years. Um, The growth of the church in the book of Acts was personally orchestrated by Jesus. We call the book of Acts the book of Acts, which is short for Acts of the Apostles. But I've heard it said we actually should call the book the continuing Acts of Jesus. And in fact, the very first verse of the book of Acts is this. Uh, Acts was written by by Luke, and Acts begins this way. In the first book... That's the Gospel of Luke. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up and after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So if Luke is about all that Jesus began to do until the time he was taken up, what's Acts about? It's about the rest of the stuff that Jesus did. Um, That this is the story of Paul, but really it's the story of Jesus' work in Paul's life. Um, We here, ourselves, may not be apostles, um, but we know that we have a relationship with the same God who cared for Paul in that way, who speaks to us through friends, through pastors, through his word, who works in our lives, um, who said things like, I know the plans that I have for you. He said that to the Israelites, and yet it's still true today. He said to the disciples, I will be with you until the end of the age. And we're here in our age representing them and their faith in this place where we live. What memories do you have of God protecting you and working in your life and providing for you? 
that just like Paul, in the wash of three or five or 20 years, a lot of times those are not the details that, that we always remember. And yet I bet if you think back, you can remember ways that you, times where you did not know how things were going to work out and the Lord provided for you. Uh, when Susie and I got engaged, I was in seminary, and she had just graduated seminary, and she had a job as a social worker, and uh, I was driving a 1989 Honda Civic, and uh, could pretty much fit my life into the Civic, and uh, then we got engaged, and I was excited, and then almost immediately my first moment of husband anxiety hit me, because now that we're engaged, we're going to have to have a place to live and, uh, and we were not going to have roommates to help us share the rent. And, of course, when you are renting a place, you need rent, but you also need the like, first and last month's rent, that deposit thing. And I had no idea where that was going to come from. And then when I thought a little more, I realized that between us we had no furniture. I was sleeping in a bunk bed that my roommate had constructed out of, like, plywood. And uh, that was not going to work. And uh, so I freaked out, and then some of you may remember this, right about that time we were in an economic recession, and so the government decided to stimulate the economy by uh, giving us all some money. And so uh, Susie got a $600 check the week, the week that our first last deposit was due, and it was $600, which is what the government stimulus package was. And then a couple weeks later, I got my stimulus check, and that became our furniture. Uh, and so, uh, whatever your feelings about the government, Jesus provided for us in a moment of stress to have what we needed. And I remember thinking at the time, I will never forget this. We should write this down because I, I knew that the Lord uh, had provided for us in our hour of need. Remember the milestones in your life like that and remember to call them to mind in the midst of long seasons. That Paul had all these words from Jesus and they were all four to ten years apart. It's important to remember them. The so first thing to know is that God is at work. The second thing to know is that God's work takes a very long time. Uh, in RUF, sometimes we call this the learning process. Um. When these 14 years were done, Paul was still Paul. He was still the person that Jesus made him from the beginning, and yet his, in, his insides were completely rearranged emotionally, spiritually, from the days when he was persecuting the church. Uh, I've heard from friends in the construction industry that it's usually easier to tear a building down than to do a complete remodel. Um that Jesus, Jesus takes on the, most, the more difficult task of taking broken down people like Paul and you and me and not breaking the building down and building a new one, but renovating the whole thing from the inside out, tearing it down to the studs, putting in the new wiring, putting in the new plumbing, that this is what's happening in these 14 years. And in the way that he's designed us with our hearts and emotions and lives, the process doesn't happen quickly. Uh, Eugene Peterson wrote in one place, uh, speaking of uh, the exiles in the Old Testament, the Israelites, that, um, that God delivered the Israelites from slavery in Egypt and brought them to himself, and then they wandered around the wilderness for 40 years. And Eugene Peterson writes this, Moses came down from Mount Sinai 
something over 3,000 years ago with the stone tablets of God's commands in his arms and the word of God's in his lips. He had just been instructed by God in how to train and lead the Hebrews into a life of mature, obedient, and holy freedom. But these people, who had just been delivered from a world of oppressive slavery and who were now free, saved and free, had generations of slave identity bred into them. This was not going to be easy and certainly not quick. No easier and certainly not any faster for them than it is for us. In other words, part of the reason for the 40 years in the wilderness is it was going to take Jesus about 40 years to even just begin freeing the Israelites from slavery. That it happened in a moment and yet it still took about 40 years of uh, growth and learning process. Um... To borrow a line from my RUF campus minister, Ed Dunnington, uh, sometimes we shortchange ourselves in thinking about God's work on our life by being disappointed that I'm not growing immediately. And instead, it's often helpful to ask, where were you spiritually a year ago? Not last week, but where were you a year ago? And what was going on in your life spiritually five years ago? This is 2014. And what has Jesus done in that amount of time? What is he accomplishing in your heart over the term of the long haul? Paul Koyster said, Learning is a divinely ordained process by which a person comes to understand and commit himself to the truth in a unique and personal way. So there's the truth aspect and there's the unique and personal way. And, uh, and that process takes time. One of my seminary professors coined the word discombobulation. He said that learning almost always requires discombobulation, that you have a, a mental structure in your mind, and in order to create a new or more expanded one, you have to tear down part of the old one. He also said learning takes place through a cooperation of three things, support, structure, and challenge. Challenge, that's, that's the discombobulation. And so in Paul's life, we can see Jesus providing all of those things. The, uh, the shining light and the blindness is, is the ultimate discombobulation <laughs> that, um, that Paul, in a sense, really is disintegrated. That everything that he was about must be undone. And yet Jesus provides for him the structure of fellowship with the saints, teaching and fellowship from Ananias and Barnabas and Peter and all of the people that he meets along the way, uh, the structures of uh, weekly worship and teaching and all these things in his life, uh, the challenge of having all of his structures removed and then being sent away to pray, uh, in the sense of the challenge of not having a structure suddenly. And Jesus provided all of these things for Paul just as he has and will continue to provide them for me and for you. Uh, discombobulation, and then support and structure. The final thing to see is that um, Paul participated in the process. That God was at work in his life. His work was taking a long time, and Jesus had a plan that Paul was not aware of uh, about a certain amount of time in Damascus, a little bit of time in Jerusalem, a lot of time in Tarsus. Uh, and yet, through all the unknowns 
of the learning process, Paul is continuing to go to synagogue. He's continuing to meet with people who are spending time with him and coming alongside him. He's continuing to practice teaching. And yet, God was at work through the ways that Paul was participating, partnering with Jesus in his learning process. Uh, Paul doesn't say for us what this would have felt like, but I imagine it probably felt like not an ascent, not a building up process, but a descent. That Paul, a member of the Sanhedrin, an important persecutor of the church, becomes uh, a converted Christian in Damascus, and then briefly in Jerusalem, and then a completely unknown guy in the back country for like 10 years. And so Paul receives this commission and yet spirals down and down and down into uh, anonymity. And yet from Jesus' perspective, what he's doing is he's taking something that was offensive and unuseful, and he's building it into something that is beautiful in his sight. Uh, when I was in seminary, one of everyone's favorite seminary professors was David Calhoun. He was our church history professor who actually retired before I got there and then came back out of retirement to come back and teach more church history classes for us. Uh, we found out that he became a church history professor because uh, years and years ago, he was a student at Covenant Seminary and wanted to go get a PhD in New Testament. And in those days, the, prof the president of the seminary said, uh, David, there are many, many people out there who can teach New Testament. There are very few people who can teach church history. I don't need New Testament. I need church history. And so Dr. Calhoun thought, well, if church history is what we need, that's what I'm going to do. And then when got a PhD in church history, came back, taught at Covenant Seminary, and uh, he was brilliant. He was wise. He would lecture without notes. All of this sort of historical details would flow out of them, and yet he would mix them with uh, joy and childlike character and am amazing emotional presence. He read to us uh, from Winnie the Pooh. He read us uh, um, the, the little bunny. What's the book? Um, Runaway Bunny. He was like, this is the gospel. Jesus is chasing you down. We're all like, oh, Dr. Calhoun, tell us, tell us again. In 1989, Dr. Calhoun was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer and given a number of months to live. And so entered onto a regimen of chemotherapy, which ended up lasting multiple years, and then eventually was declared free of cancer. And then about a year later, he was diagnosed with cancer and went back into chemotherapy and radiation. And when last I heard, he still has cancer. And he has been going, undergoing cancer treatment more often than not since 1989. And one of the things that we would all say to ourselves over and over and over again is if there's anyone at Covenant Seminary that we wanted to be like when we grew up, it was Dr. Calhoun, just not the way that he got to where he was. And yet that's the way that Jesus chose to make him into the character that he had that we all loved and had such an impact on us. Thankfully, hopefully, for those of us in this room, it doesn't mean uh, 30 years of cancer treatments. 
But whatever it is that God is using in your life to bring discombobulation and structure and support, um, may you participate with him in that and remember the ways that he has been faithful to you in the past and may he give you, perhaps even through these passages, insight to see the thing that he is making you into. Uh, and one day we will be gathered together in his presence. And we can all, with Paul, share the amazing stories together of the way that God worked in our lives in all the wilderness years. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, I'm not sure that I do thank you for the suffering, but I thank you that we are not alone in it. And I do thank you that you make beautiful things through suffering in the world that we are in. Thank you um, that you did not choose uh, a hero or someone who had it all together or someone who was the most disciplined, um, that you chose a broken and spiteful man to become our model in the New Testament, that he could say, follow me as I follow Christ. Lord, I pray that you would give us life in the same way, that we may worship you, that we may have more joy in your name, that we become more beautiful in your sight, more gracious to the people around us. Uh, give us the faith to trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.